Welcome to the Legend of the Death Race podcast. I'm your host, Tony Matisse, and every week we share legends from past death racers on the courage, power, and wisdom it takes to conquer life's obstacles. All of us death racers aspire to inspire you to create a life past your limits. Today's legend follows the story of death racer Jeff Robinette, who competed in two death races. Jeff is a high school math teacher working on his master's in educational administration, and he's about to have his first baby boy. He's a cancer survivor, and he's competed in a few death races. He's an ultra runner, Ironman triathlete, wrestler, high school coach, and we are so excited to have you on the show. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Tony. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Glad to have you here, and you know, super excited to get your death race legend recorded. So... With that said, give us a little bit of background um, beyond what I've said. Where are you from? What is it you do um, in your high school teaching? And, you know, give us a little background on your athletics growing up. Yeah, absolutely. So originally from Cary, North Carolina, uh, born and raised there. Um, I was athletic all my life, you know, played soccer, rec, uh, all throughout. And it wasn't actually until I found wrestling in high school that I started getting serious. Um from there, graduated, and I've just coached ever since then, and made my way out here to California in like 2008, and that's where I actually met uh, the people who discovered the death race and introduced me to it. And oh, so, awesome. <laughs> and t- t- tell us about that. How did you discover this thing called the death race? So one of them is kind of a familiar name around the community, Darren DeHarris. Um, He wasn't actually the person that introduced me to it, though. So at the time, Darren was coaching wrestling at Monrovia High School, and I was coaching in South Pasadena. And so we're kind of just crosstown rivals. And one of the other coaches, Al Shooten, he and Darren were friends for a long time. And so Al actually went and crewed Darren when he did the 2011 death race. Okay. Al came back and he's like, Jeff, you've got to do this thing. And he just went on and on and on and would not stop. You've got to do this. You've got to sign up for it. And so I actually got peer pressured into signing up for this thing. Eventually (laughs) I just caved. (laughs) Didn't know really a thing about it or anything. It was just more of an effort to get Al to to shut up. (laughs) I was like, fine, I'll do it. (laughs) That's awesome. And so then, yeah, yeah, you ended up doing the, the 2012 death race and, um, well, paint me a story about what that was like. What was your 2012 death race experience like? So it, it, it was kind of wild. Um, you know, it's you, you go and research what you can online. I'd heard all the rumors and things that had been done before. And you, you do the best that you can do to prepare for it. But there's really there are a few things you can expect to see. But being ready for anything that they're going to throw at you. That's the best thing you can go and do. And so as far as the actual story, um, you know, we show up there, it's the summer of 2012. And so that was the year of betrayal. And they did a really good job of making it so that I didn't trust anybody that was there. And so they they did phenomenal with that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from the get-go. Um, so th- this is where it's kind of funny is because, you know, th- this was around a time when Darren was starting up Sisu. And so I had moved away from California in 2011. So as he was ramping that up, I actually left right as that was happening. And so he came with his crew that they had been training with all year. 
And I had moved to North Carolina, and so I'd been training on my own and met a friend. And so it was more or less me and Will, this guy that had been training together, trying to one-up each other. Um, he was who came and crewed me. And so we, we get there. And the first thing they do is, you know, they have you going and doing all these little tasks. There's a swim test or something else like that. I don't remember, but you jump in the pond and they dump all these ping pong balls in there to separate everybody into two different teams. And I, I remember Darren and everyone that had been trained together were looking for the same number of ping pong balls so they could all gather together. And I, I, I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, I just, I like to float under the radar <laughs> and they were just making a little bit too much noise for myself. <laughs> and so it's very fair. They were, they were definitely uh, making their presence known. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. And so I, I was like, uh, I, I had two ping pong balls in my hand, one with that number that they were on and a different one. I decided to toss that other one aside. And so I was on a different team than what they ended up being on. And I, in retrospect, I was really glad about that decision. Um, yeah, it's a pretty good decision. <laughs> in the, in the, looking back in hindsight, uh, having been on the same team, as much as I love them and that I got to know all of them so much better in the relationships we forged, that tire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, for anyone that doesn't know, um, they broke up into teams and they gave us these tokens. You know, I started off with... Uh, my team had two kayaks that we had to carry. We're running all through the woods. And you all didn't start off in the tire, did you? No, that was like the third item we got or something like that. Okay. Somehow we got stuck with it, like in one of the weird switch ups. Yeah, there, there were a couple of those. I wasn't sure at what point you all got that. I just know that at some point the tire team fell way behind everybody else. <laughs> we started with a slosh pipe and it wasn't too bad. You know, we were cruising. We were like at the front of the pack most of the time. We're like, this is great. We're cruising. And uh, yeah, somehow, some way we got stuck with the tire and we we're like, what just happened? How did, how did we get stuck with this? <laughs> like, what did we do to deserve this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I saw that thing. I just did not want to be carrying that. And so just perspective, like I, I felt very happy carrying that kayak. And we ended up with the slosh tube at the end going up a uh, blood route. <laughs> and so yeah. I was just happy, you know, happy yeah, that I wasn't on that. Yeah, especially team. looking back. But so you guys were able to get that and you guys got to go and do a bunch of challenges that we never got to do because of that. So. Um, tell us a little bit about that. You guys, I think, ended up going and doing like an origami thing. And then I want to say you did a swim. Were those the two things that? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot it's about like, the swim. Like, there was like a whole 18 hours that like I just missed during this. Yeah. So I, I was trying to refresh myself with everything that we had done. I'd forgotten so many different things. Um, yeah. So, you know, like we, we were running up and down the mountains of blood root when I did that one with the slosh tube. And eventually, you know, we, we did that all night long. And so it wasn't until the beginning of day number two that we ended up on the other side of the mountain. And there was a whole, I don't know how long this driveway was, but you know, there was a pile of gravel that we had to go and carry, I want to say two bucket loads of gravel in our little Home Depot buckets and go and just finish off this driveway and there was a little swim on the other side, but I gotta be honest like that swim was refreshing. Yeah. I've never really been that much of a swimmer or done morning swims, but after going through the mountains and being able to take off all my gear and just toss on a life vest, I'm pretty sure we had life vests. Um, just easy cruise out and around a buoy. That was a welcome change. <laughs> <laughs> sounds nice. It sounds pretty refreshing. Uh, I know that that reservoir is actually quite, 
quite nice since it's all the runoff from the snow like that ends up in there and it's it's it's, it's refreshing yeah yeah gave my uh, shoes a chance to dry out also so oh, yeah. it's a little yeah. fire that i had built up but yeah so you know like that year the the whole thing that they did was they were trying to go and just so the this sense that you couldn't trust the person next to you you know, we're running through the woods and, you know, you're going one direction. You don't really know who's leading the pack, but all of a sudden you're, you're, everybody's changing up. You've made a wrong turn. And so, you know, throughout this whole thing, you, you didn't trust anyone. Um, you know, I, I remember going up and down, uh, the mountains to Shrek's cabin, you know, it's a bunch of snowmobile trails and they were really clever with what they did. You know, they had hung up the little neon flyers to map the way up the trail. And mm-hmm. so you're busy focusing on your own thing and you come to rely on these little flyers all the way up to the top. And so it wasn't long before you like, oh, I don't have to learn this trail. And at some point, I don't know when, but somebody went and changed them all around. And so you're following these things as that's what you've always done. And the group that I was with, we ended up, I don't know, three miles in the wrong direction, lost on this mountain, having to go and find our way back. And it, it was just a nightmare <laughs> to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, they really messed with the flagging on that event. Like it was crazy because you, you'd follow them and the next thing you know, like, wait a minute, this isn't where is everybody and what happened? <laughs> I, I remember that happening a couple times. Um, so what were some of the um, kind of betrayals that you felt were happening to you besides besides the flagging? So the two of them kind of stand out in my mind. Um, there, there was one of them later on in the race. Uh, they had done this whole wood chopping thing. They gathered us all back together and they they regrouped us with a team and i was with the team that made it to the next checkpoint first and they gave you a number and so there were stakes in the ground again you had to carry gravel fill in all these little holes on the side of the mountain and eventually i mean the first person you start to distrust was the race director and so there, there were one or two teams that found their stake first. And my group, we were the first ones that got there. And so we got our number and we were assuming we were going to have an easy stake to find. And so a couple other teams found theirs really quickly. They were up and down 30 minutes out. And we didn't realize that there were stakes all over this mountain and on the other side. And so oh, all the race directors were like, they're out there. You got to go find them. And so we're like, you know what, BS, we, we don't believe you. And what my team ended up doing was we found, we got somebody else who had a stake and I'm pretty sure we took one of our axes and split it and someone had a sharpie and they wrote the number on the stake. And so we, we just thought it was a, a task that didn't have an end, like whatever, you know, like we didn't trust them. And so um, it turns out there was a stake <laughs> and we did get caught and we had to go and get punished for it afterwards. But, um, the, what, was the was, pun- what was the punishment? It, it, it really wasn't that bad. Um, in my mind, I had it made out to be something a lot worse than what it was. You know, that first pond that we all got in the very beginning, uh, it was nighttime. They said, you know, like you've got to go spend, spend an hour just standing that pond. 
and it's nighttime. You've been out there for a long time, and I'm convinced in my head that this thing's going to be freezing cold, and my body temperature's going to drop, and it's just going to be terrible. And I, we were kind of lucky. Like Once I got in there, I realized, oh, this isn't that bad. Like It's warm water. I just get to sit around, recoup. It's, it's going to be okay. Um, yeah, it's not so bad. And so it, it was just this sense of you can't really trust anything that's going on. You can't trust the people around you. You can't trust the race directors. Some things are real, some things aren't. And it just messes with you throughout the entire thing. Um, one of the other instances, like after I figured out some of these things are real, some things aren't, uh, you know, there, there was a point you came back into the base camp and this is where you check in. And this was my experience. I'm really curious if this is what you had also, but you get there and they told me, miss the time cutoff, your DNF, you know, mm -hmm. you can go pick up the concrete bag, take it top, to the top of the mountain if you want, but it's all for not. It's, it's just up to you. And so I had just gotten back with one guy. We had spent the entire night together and working on whatever it was we were doing. And this is maybe, I want to say, the end of day two time frame. And so I, I went back to base camp just to refuel, get some more water, get some food in me, and just kind of watch what was going on. And it, it was a really interesting thing that I saw is that there were three distinct reactions that people had when they got to that checkpoint. You know, they were all told the exact same thing. You missed the time cut off. And some people went home happy. You know, they said, mm -hmm. you know, I gave it my all. I'm happy with my performance. And they quit. They went home. Some people got really angry. They felt cheated. I didn't know there was a time cut off. And they just lost their minds and they went home just upset. And then there was the third group that said, you know, whatever, DNF, I came here to go and do this thing. And so I'm going to go and do this. And they picked up the bag of concrete and you had to go and bushwhack up through a trail and keep it dry the entire time. Right. And those people that took the bag of concrete uh, were the ones that went on, that were eligible to go and finish. And so I, I never found out whether that was something that everybody was presented with that choice or whether it was just certain people. I think most people were. My story is like so different just because of the tire and so many other things that kind of went awry but uh when we got there they were out of concrete bags mm. so when so when morgan and i got there they're like well we actually don't have any more concrete bags so just go to the next challenge because <laughs> like they, i think they told us like we couldn't go and we're like no we're gonna still go like what's next and they're like all right well fine go to the next challenge and so we didn't have to do the concrete but we kind of were presented with almost like that like well you didn't make it in time there's nothing left we're like well we don't care like we still want to do whatever's next like we can we'll do that then right and so they just let us keep going and it was i think it was really that mental like you know what is what are you going to do when you're presented with this like failure almost it's like do you continue on or do you just take take it as their excuse to leave or you know it was an interesting i think they were purposely putting that that out there for us I really think they were also, you know, like, you know, so I've been through two of them and Joe always has like a, a pre-survey and a post-survey. I, I don't know what he's done with the data that he's collecting, mm -hmm. but I feel like he's doing this giant social experiment with every single race. And totally. I, I definitely feel like it was very purposeful, very intentional in doing that. Um, you know, there, there was an earlier point in the race. This was 
right a, I think this is when you all were able to leave the tire behind. Mm-hmm. Um, we had gone up to the this one uh, station on the top of the mountain. They gave us a, a written test. And you had to go sit down, fill this thing out. It was a ridiculous test. And you had to go and, like, answer your answers in a ridiculous way. But um, while we're sitting there, you know, we couldn't talk to each other. And I got there. They gave me the test. I'm sitting down, relaxing, filling this thing out again. Nice chance to go catch a breather, rehydrate, get some fuel. And it was the person after me that came up. They told him the exact same thing as the concrete. You know, like you missed the time cut off, you know, your DNF. And so this guy gets really angry, not happy about it. And so he starts storming off and he walks about maybe 30 feet away. And the guy calls out, but if you can convince somebody else to quit, you can have their spot. And so you had like five people from that point on who were told this message going up and down the rows of people that are trying to take the test, trying to convince them to quit and trade out spots. And I saw at least two people trade out spots. They're like, you know what? I'm done. Have my spot. You're welcome to it and leave at that point. It's incredible. It's crazy. Like the, the, the social experiment of all this and like what you're getting people to do and how you're, you know, presenting them with these types of challenge. It's really interesting. And I would, I'd like to see what the data shows now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know when Joe's going to release it, but I'd be very curious. <laughs> right. Cause like, there's definitely been some interesting things that have, have happened at these events like that. Um, yeah. That's another thing that we didn't get to. We didn't get to. We, uh, I think we were just so far behind that by the time we got, even close to going to do the test it was like oh you know what you guys aren't gonna make it so you guys you're out and we're like well we don't care then like what's what's next right <laughs> we just yeah, kept asking, what's next <laughs> right when we wrapped up that section we were coming down the road and that's when we encountered you all pushing that tire up the hill and uh, i'm yes. pretty sure that's when you rejoined the pack with everybody else <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty much where like i was like okay finally joe was like i can't believe you guys are still moving this damn like he's like all right you're done with the tire <laughs> like because he like there was one point where we thought we were going to be done with it it was after y'all were coming back from chittenden reservoir but then he's like nope you guys are back on the tire and then so we got put back on it and that you know put us a couple more hours behind everybody again and we're like all right you know like we're never going to catch up at this point um so that was like kind of a lot of your 2012 death race experience um and i believe you said you finished that one yeah i did yeah. So you, that so, you, so you finished that one. So I guess my next question is you went back in 2015, right? I did. And so why did you do the 2012 death race? And then why did you go back in 2015? So, you know, the reason why I did the 2012, like I said, I just kind of got peer pressured into it. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of the, the kind of person like when I say I'm going to do something, I'm just going to go follow through with it. And so at the very offset of it it wasn't anything other than essentially a dare yeah Um, yeah. as far as why i went back and did the 2015 at at that point it was more of just a a personal decision um so i i'd always trained pretty seriously with through wrestling and then through the death race it really kind of opened my eyes to this broader world of like just general preparedness fitness. And that just clicked with me. I loved it. And so like summer is a challenge in its own rights. But Mm -hmm. then when you're talking about winter in Vermont and doing a death race, that's just a whole nother beast. And so 
a part of the whole thing with the death race was I wanted to find out where my limits were, what am I capable of doing? And so that was a larger driving force of just testing myself personally as far as what I'm able to do, how far I'm able to go and perform, and in what conditions. You know, you hear about people doing things that are ridiculous all the time, and you just scratch your head like, oh, can I do that? And I wanted to go and scratch that itch. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the general preparedness. Um, you know, it's kind of that whole like, uh, if the apocalypse were to happen, if something crazy were to happen, would I be ready for it? You know, if, and if these events kind of give us a platform to test ourselves in, in these more primal ways that we've been so far removed from, that we can say, okay, yes, I, I, I know that if full catastrophe hits, I can do this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's hitting it the nail on the head, you know, like by and large we live very comfortable lives. You know, you know, the, the term first world problem is very applicable to just about everyone here in the US and yes. it's it's just a way of going and figuring out like all right, you know, like when uh, the shit hits the fan, can you hack it? Yeah. Do you have what it takes? And I, I think that's probably what the larger drive was for me. It's like, okay, you know, I know that I, I don't like the cold. I'm not a fan of it. So let's let's just go plunge into it and see see what happens. Yeah. And so how did how did your winter death race experience go? And which one when was that? So that was 2015. That was 2015. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Um, so that one was much more difficult. Um, couple reasons. Uh, one of them, big mistake that I made early on in the race. Um, but the other one, uh, so I, I was actually in my fifth month of chemo when I did the 2015 death race. And yeah. so, and so tell us a little bit about this. So, um, when did you end up with cancer or finding out that you had cancer? When did you start doing treatment and where in this did your training and death race and all that fall? So I, I actually found out that I had cancer about a year before I did the summer 2012 death race. So I found okay. out in summer of 2011. Okay. Um, the, the whole timeline for this briefly is I noticed a lump just under the skin on the right side of my hip probably in like 2009 and about marble size went to the doctor they're like oh it's just a cyst or a lipoma incredibly common nothing to worry about and Mm. took them at face value and 99.9 percent of the time they're right Right. but that wasn't me so fast forward to uh, 2011, I was moving back home to North Carolina. It had gotten bigger to like the size of a small egg. I was like, you know, I, I just get rid of this. And so surgeon goes in there and they remove it and they're like, I don't know what it is, but it's not what we thought. And so that's when the whole snowball started. Oh, wow. And so they, they do testing on it to, to, to biopsy it and see like what it was. And Yeah. The, the initial diagnosis came back as a Ewing sarcoma, which that, that's bad news that if, if it had gone untreated for a year, I wouldn't have been there. And so immediately afterwards I was scheduled for, uh, radiation chemo and a second surgery. And there was just like one or two genetic markers that were off on it. And so it was the day before the surgery where they were going to go back in and remove extra tissue around it. The surgeon said, Hey, time out. 
just want to go and double check things and they changed the diagnosis. And okay. so um, it, it definitely turned my life upside down at that point in time. And yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine like how, how startling that could be. Yeah. For lack and, of better words. <laughs> yeah, you, you have all these plans like, all right, cool, you know, I'm moving back. I'm gonna go and you know, I work on grad school and I got put on pause and training for the death race. That got put on pause and just everything that you have going, stop. We gotta refocus. Uh, but fortunately, they did change the diagnosis. And by the books, what they changed it to, here's a mouthful, angiomatoid fibrocystiocytoma. Um, <laughs> it's a tough one to remember. <laughs> right. Um, it, by the books, it's benign. And so it went from like DEFCON 5 to we're just going to go and monitor this whole thing. And it, it was never painful. It never got in the way of any of my training, which mm -hmm. is kind of the, the crazy part because that's not everyone's experience with cancer. Right. Um, and so I was really thankful about that. And so, so that was 2011, first time removed. A year later, this was after the death race, it came back in the same spot. And so they had to go remove it again. And then a year later, it metastasized my lung. And so by the book, this thing was benign, but the way it was acting and behaving was anything but. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so it actually spread from your hip to your lungs, you say? It did. Wow. Yeah. That had to be so, scary. <laughs> Somewhat, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like looking back, it's a little bit surreal because the the medical part of this was definitely very serious. Like I had a, uh, a wedge resection, so they removed a piece of my lung, and that was in 2014. So like before the winter death race, and you know, so. Two surgeries before on my hip, removed a piece of my lung, and then chemo there at the end of 2014 into 2015. And so, you know, it, it was definitely a serious thing. But like I said, there was no pain associated with it. It never interfered with my training. When I did the uh, wedge resection of my lung, the week before I had done a 50k, and three weeks later I did a 50 miler. <laughs> wow! So yeah, it, that's, that's it. A... Didn't impact me. <laughs> very fortunate for you not to have the impact of it. Um, so when you found all this out, did you do anything different? Did you change your diet? Did you, you know, did you change anything, I guess, at all, like with this information and knowledge as it came, came about? Um, no, no, I, I just kind of followed the doctor's recommendations. And that was just, if it isn't hurting you, then absolutely stay active. Um, and honestly, looking back on it, that that was probably one of the things that helped me out the most when I went into chemo is that, yeah. um, you know, fortunately, my experience with it was on the, the much more mild side of different chemo effects. Um, mm -hmm. Unless you were actually looking for it, you wouldn't have told been able to tell that my hair was thinning. Um, I started going to bed earlier. I thought I was just getting older. It wasn't until chemo stopped that I started staying up late. I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe tired. Um, yeah, you know, I think I've heard that though. Uh, you can go into it different with a different approach and if you have a positive mindset. So I'm wondering how did your mindset play into it? Um, where was your head at like going through this? Were you looking at everything like in a very positive light? Uh, yeah, um, I, I really was. And it's, 
I have some very clear memories. I remember, so at the time I was getting treated at uh, Duke Hospital there in Durham. And, you know, I'm sitting there in the waiting room and there's a person next to me who is about to start radiation and chemo and just visibly nervous, visibly shaken. And at this point in time, I'm already like about three months into it and just start talking about it. And a lot of times what people will do is they'll, they'll start going onto WebMD or, you know, they'll hear all these things that happen with cancer treatments and they just take it as a given that, oh, this is what my experience is going to be also. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like taking it one step at a time is the the key is that you can't assume that your experience is going to be whatever is out there, whatever other people have been through that you've just got to go and let the events happen, do the best that you can to go and prepare yourself uh, to live the best life. And if that's what ends up happening, great. You haven't cheated yourself out of that experience yeah. because you got in your head. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is I, I just let what happened unfold on its own natural terms rather than trying to predetermine what my experience was going to be. Yeah. And so with that mindset, is that how you approached your death races? Did you it use is. that same mindset? Yeah, totally. I, I feel like that's what you've got to do, um, yeah. because just by the nature of it, it's there, there are so many parallels between what happens on the death race and what happens in life. You know, in life, you're not going to know what the next curveball is. It's going to get thrown at you, but inevitably it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the exact same thing in the death race, just condensed down to a much shorter time period where it's just going to be <laughs> curveball after curveball after curveball. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's kind of funny, like, you know, some people go and approach the death race and just gung ho, I'm going to go and win this thing. And that's great. Go for it. Try and win it. But you can't expect it to be like something you've built up in your mind because it's guaranteed to not be that way. And once you have those preconceived expectations and when they're not met, that's when people get angry and they lose their minds and they end up quitting. That's that's what I believe anyway. <laughs> no, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, we've had some people who have like one of the death race on the show. We've had some people, um, there's some people we haven't had on the show yet, but like they went out there with that mentality to win it and they didn't, and they didn't win it because they, you know, I think had all these expectations that weren't met and then they got angry, like you said. And then I know a few people who quit because of like getting angry at the unfairness, but that's, that's the death race. It's unfair. Yeah. Uh, just life. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's much less of a race and much more of a parallel of life that, that, that those are the rules that it plays by not. Yeah a marathon or an Ironman. It doesn't play by those rules. Yeah, there's no, it's not an A to B. It's not an A to B race. It's not defined. It's, it's super, uh, abstract. And so, um, during all this time, you were able to compete in these races, which is incredible given the situation that you had to face. Um, but how did you train for them? How did you prepare for these races? Especially like that first one where you, uh, you know, we're going into it more or less just as a dare. And then how did you train for the second one when you were going into it for a little bit of a different reason? Yeah. So for the first one, I, I was already in shape. You know, I was, I was, I've been coaching wrestling for a long time and my approach, I'm 
I'm someone that's going to go and mix it up with the guys also. So I was already in shape from that. And what I got into at that point in time was CrossFit. And so uh, through CrossFit, I became really good friends with Will. He's the person that crewed me. He was mm-hmm. one of the coaches. And so he had just gotten out of the army. And so he had his army background uh, in CrossFit. And so I'll go through the local box there, found a good one, you know, CrossFit. I'll, I'll go ahead and risk it, but not all boxes are good. A lot of them aren't. <laughs> It's true. You have to find a good one. Um, and so I just feel like fortunate that I did find a good one. And I found a coach who became fast friends with where between the two of us, it was almost like one of us would do something. And then it was just just competition between us. We had to go and one up the other person who was going to be able to go and take it a step further, a step further, a step further. And so, you know, we would go and do the workout at the box probably five days a week, immediately follow it with like a three to five mile run. Um, uh, I was in a rec soccer league and so just running constantly there and I would just go and I picked a rock. I don't know how much it weighed, but you know, just go and do a trail run, you know, somewhere between five and seven miles, just at least once a week. And generally speaking, it was cross training that I did. I did a couple of events to go and prepare myself for the the longer things. I did a go ruck uh, to get used to the backpack and overnights, a couple of adventure races, love adventure races, highly recommend them. Yeah. Adventure Um, races are fantastic. But yeah, that was pretty much how I did the training leading up to uh, 2012. And so I really felt physically that got me everywhere I needed to be to go and be a competitor. Um, I, there, there were definitely people out there that were better equipped physically than I was, but I wasn't going there to win. And so that, right. that wasn't my goal from the get go. <laughs> it's a pretty good, I think that's the best way to train though, right? Is to have this very diverse um, set of skills that you work on and ways that you train because the death race is so unpredictable and you don't know exactly what you're going to be presented with. So if you're well-versed in a lot of different areas and you have a good cross training, that's probably going to give you the best preparation it can for a death race. Uh, you know, if you're only running or if you're only rucking, you're not really giving yourself the benefit of training for everything that could be thrown your way. I mean, if you get stuck the year before 2011, what they do, they picked up rocks for like seven hours and they just picked them up and down. Like, I mean, you got to be ready for anything. So doing a bunch of different types of training is probably better than just doing one specific type of thing. Um, Going into either of these death races, what fears did you have going into them? So maybe this is just ignorance, but you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily had any fears going into the summer death race. Um, the winter one, I was definitely fearful of the cold. Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned before, I feel like that's one of the things that I'm is a weak point. I know I'm not comfortable in the cold. And so I was definitely fearful of that. And that one actually did come back to go and uh, kick me pretty hard. Um, yeah. So the, in winter 2015, when they started us off, it was at night, and that night had dropped down to be negative 20. And I felt like I was fairly well prepared, um, had all my clothes. I was really happy with the way that I did the layering, my 
feet were warm, hands were warm, never had to deal with any of that, could unzip real quick on the fly. I had my water in some insulated bottles, and even in there, it started to freeze not too long into it. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I didn't anticipate that the cold got was um, my food. So I had all my gels and whatnot right there on the outside pockets. You know, I knew that at the beginning it was going to be going fast. I wouldn't be able to go and dig through my pack or anything like that. And so I just had quick access gels and they froze rock solid. And so it wasn't, I wasn't able to get any, get the time to go and fish out anything or defrost, dethaw, whatever, uh, those gels for 12 hours. And so I got myself in a huge hole nutrition wise at the very beginning of that death race. And that was a huge handicap for myself from that point on. That, that was oh, the biggest man. mistake I made on that one. And yeah. So if you were to do that differently now, what would you bring with you uh, to not have to deal with that? So I, I wouldn't have changed what I brought with me. I would have changed where I stored it. You know, gotcha. I had it on the outside pockets of the shell jacket. And so Instead if I of just, like on the inside, like exactly. Close to body, if I had it yeah. like a layer or two deeper inside of me where I could still have had access to it. Um, that would have made a huge difference in my experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I felt like by that point in time, I had done enough events that I was dialed in on what nutrition I needed to bring all the, uh, macronutrients and all of that. But, you know, I'm in North Carolina and, you know, w- whatever, I'm not making an excuse, but I didn't have the, the cold weather that I needed to go and realize that, Oh, like my, food something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's a thing like experience is where we learn, you know, the most, right. And it, some of the things that you learn, uh, if you're carrying a Nalgene bottle in the winter, right. Don't leave it upright with the, um, with the cap on the top, flip it upside down so that way it freezes from the bottom, or which you know it's that because it always freezes from the top. So if you have it flipped upside down, it's going to freeze at the bottom. You flip it up, and then you're going to be able to drink out of it still, right? It's like these yeah. little things, but you're not going to learn that unless you're living in an environment that you know gives you that opportunity. So <laughs> it's hard to learn some of these things unless you learn them the hard way sometimes. But you know you learn them at least, right? So, yeah, exactly. You know, like that's the biggest thing. Like if you don't finish, as long as you learn something along the way, then it's not a loss. So right. <laughs> and so so with that, um, you know, eating uh, what. Summer, winter, doesn't matter. What was your go-tos for like sustaining yourself through this event? And uh, you know, what was your favorite thing that you got like that you looked forward to? So, favorite thing, I I always uh, I pick this up from Will. You know, you've got to go and build in little rewards. You know, Mm -hmm. like when you you go and it's it's one step at a time. But in your mind, you've got to have little checkpoints. And so, you know, just go and get like a a Mr. Good Bar. You know, there's little like mini things that uh, like Halloween candies. (laughs) And so, you just create a little reward system for yourself. And those would probably be the favorite things. Like once you've gone and hit your goal. It's like, all right, great. I can have a Snickers. <laughs> heck yeah. Heck yeah. And, but, and then in the general overall, like sustaining yourself, what was your, you know, main foods that you were eating to, to get through? So I, I tried to go and bounce out it, it was all about like the macronutrients. And so I loved Epic bars, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they've got fats, they've got the protein in there. Um, as far as the carbs, um, honey stingers, they make these little, like little wafers. Oh my God, um, those things are so good. <laughs> they are. They're 
amazing. And so I love those things. And so I just kind of had a little different things from each category that I really liked because throughout training and these death races, you've got to learn to listen to your body. It'll go and tell you what it is that it needs. Mm -hmm. And when, when you uh, don't listen to it, you're going to go take a bite into something that's your favorite thing. And it's going to taste like garbage and you have to go and choke it down. And it's like, it's, it doesn't want that right now. It doesn't want another carb. Like go and give it some, uh, some protein, some fat, and that'll be the best cheeseburger you ever eat in your life. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, that's, that's so true. Cause I mean, I remember there's times where it's like, Oh man, I really need something salty. You know, your body just is telling you like you're, you're deficient on salt. You're, you need something and you go and get some pickles or pickle juice or something. And it's like the best thing you've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. So like for nutrition, the, the way that I figured out what I liked, I, I went to REI and, you know, they've got that section of food and you just go and grab different things. And on your training runs, you just see like what it is that you, that you like and what you don't like and make sure you grab some Enduralites or noon tabs or some kind of electrolyte because you're going to need that in the, yeah. whether it's summer or, or winter. Yeah, I think the electrolyte tablets are something I discovered later on. And, you know, to this day, it's my favorite thing that I've ever discovered because you th- drop a few of those in and it just it, it's a game changer. You're not getting a ton of sugar and all that stuff like you would get with like a Gatorade or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're getting all the electrolytes that you need. You're getting all the salt that you need, the stuff that's going to keep your muscles from cramping and you're just wrecking havoc on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like if you want to go make an analogy, you know, that kind of stuff is like the oil in the engine. You know, like you got your 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 food, you know, like that's the gas, but you got to have all the electrolytes because if you don't, it's going to break down. <laughs> yeah, it will. It will break down. And it'll be bad. You'll have a muscle, a calf cramp or something, and you'll be sitting on the side of a mountain just in agony. Yeah. Uh, not that I've had any experience with that. Oh, no, never, <laughs> never. The Legend of the Death Race podcast is brought to you by Trail Toes, the best anti-blister, anti-chafing cream there is. Trail Toes prevented me from having any blisters after 66 hours at the 2014 Death Race and continues to prevent blisters on all my mountain adventures. Get your jar of Trail Toes today. Use the code THELEGEND on trailtoes.com for 10% off your purchase. And don't forget to visit the Legend of the Death Race shop where you can grab a Memento Mori t-shirt or poster as a reminder to live your best life. Just visit legendofthedeathrace.com slash shop. So what is uh, the most uh, interesting or uh, stupid task that you had to face at a death race? All right. So um, oh, there's a couple. There's no shortage of in either of those categories. Um <laughs> already touched about the the concrete going up and just watching people make that decision about to to quit or go on that was interesting i I remember just sitting refueling and just watching people make this decision and i'm I'm just fascinated i'm a people watcher and i was like oh okay you know so making that decision um you know in the winter death race so we had been out there for i don't know how long and just we're all tired, we're cold, and we're wet, and we get back. And one of the things that they had told us to bring on the gear list was like some welding goggles or a, uh, a sleep mask and some construction headphones. And so what they had us do was in, in the barn, you had to go and turn in your stopwatch and put on the goggles, put on the headset, and so it was sensory deprivation. And you were told that you had to be standing in there for an hour 
without saying anything. The second you go and take off whatever, like your time is up. And if you were a second short of one hour, I think it was an immediate, it wasn't some ridiculous amount, but just like 500 burpee penalty. Um, and as long as you were over an hour, you're fine, no burpees. But the other thing is that whatever time differential you had, either before or after that hour, at the very end, you were gonna have to go and sit in the creek and keep in mind, you know, like this thing is iced over, it's frozen, there's snow going outside. And so you're gonna have to go and sit in that creek for whatever the time difference is from when you take your stuff off to uh, that hour mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm, la- I'm laughing because, you know, I, I, I was there uh, <laughs> helping, helping orchestrate this. And I just remember just watching this all go down. It, this, this scene that Jeff's describing here uh, for the audience was was very interesting, and I do believe if you go look through like Peak Races Facebook, you can probably find some videos that I took. Um, we did some like time lapses of the people standing there <laughs> trying to figure out hitting this one hour mark, and I mean hitting that one hour mark was difficult. Uh, people fell asleep, right? Like most of the people fell asleep standing up uh, barefoot, as I recall, on this mm-hmm. very cold hardwood floor in a barn. Um, it was. That it was an interesting social experiment in and of itself. <laughs> oh, completely. Um, and, and, and yeah, like so, people like had to go spend more time in the water based on this, and it, it brought about even more bargaining. I think uh, later, I'll let you continue. <laughs> it, it totally did, and so um, you know, to to your point, like falling asleep, like the 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 weird dreams, like hallucinations, whatever you want to call it, like it's real. And you're trying to keep track of time when you're doing this. And so I had worked out in my head, okay, there are this many seconds in an hour. And so I'm just counting as I'm going. And you, I don't know if I fell asleep on my feet and there, there was just like an unknown amount of time that it elapsed. And I realized like, Oh crap. I just fell asleep and you're trying to remember what number you left off on <laughs> and you're like, okay, 500 burpees isn't all that much, but I definitely don't want to go and do it. <laughs> it's, it's not like an impossible number. Yeah. And, and so by the time that, so somebody actually came over and tapped me on the shoulder <laughs> and, you know, I take off my stuff and I'm like, all right, you know, like, how how long was I there? And I had been standing there for two hours. Oh my god! <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, out of between losing track of my count and out of fear of trying to just avoid unnecessary burpees, I bought myself an hour's worth of time. I'm sitting in this frozen creek <laughs> later on. Oh man, that's rough. Yeah, I think you had the longest time. For I, I think there were maybe maybe one two or, two or three of us. But yeah, yeah like yeah, that we had to like. Stop. Hey, guys, <laughs> you're over. <laughs> really over. <laughs> oh, man, that was... did stop us, though, instead of letting us keep on going. <laughs> that was definitely that was definitely one of the um, definitely one of the more interesting tasks, I'd say, in a death race. It was, I mean, just pure sensory deprivation. And then after after sleep deprivation. So it's just like this whole, you know, whirlwind of just chaos and but in, in the stillness, like it's chaos in stillness, which was what made it so interesting. Um, okay, on the flip side, what was the most difficult task? The most what difficult challenge, task? What challenged the most? So this is probably where 
you know, like different people would say different tasks are difficult for different reasons. And so, you know, going back to where I was saying, like I gone the, the initial 12 hours there without eating. Um, so for me, the most difficult task was uh, after uh, we had done the very beginning part. It was the team part of the very beginning. And then we split in our own different directions. And I was the eighth person to make it down the mountain. So like based on what place you were in, like that was how many burpees you had to do. So I had to do 80 burpees and then go off on my own. And the, the mistake I made was at that point, I didn't just like go to the home base and refuel. And so that lap around from the base camp up to Shrek's cabin and back was a nightmare for myself just yeah. because I, I set myself up for colossal failure. And, you know, as far as low points go that I've ever experienced, that was probably the lowest. And so it, it was probably one of the easiest tasks that we had to go and do that year in the death race. But it was absolute hell for myself by my own making. Yeah. Um, as far as like other tasks that were just difficult in themselves, um, the probably there in summer of 2012, um, the very last thing they had us do was a barrel roll. Um, there were six laps around this field. And, it's still the worst thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Will, he was crew with me and he's there. And uh, it was terrible for me, but he was loving it, you know, because like, <laughs> In the first little section of this lap for everyone, you like, I heard it was a quarter mile lap and you just had to do barrel rolls uh, the entire length. And there was this bucket along the way that just was filled with the most putrid, rancid stuff, whatever. I don't know what it was. It was like um, pig intestines and all kinds of just nasty. Just yeah. nasty. Just like you catch a whiff of it and whatever you have inside of you, it, it, it's coming out. Mm -hmm. And so you're barrel rolling up to this thing you, you're getting dizzy and you have to stir this bucket 10 times and roll back around and every time you complete a lap they go and ask you some question and you know th this was for me probably around like the, the 60 hour mark and so like really simple questions you're you're just racking your brain on <laughs> like I remember being there with a group of people like there were five of us trying to remember the colors of the rainbow and just double checking everybody like Roy G. Biff, that's it right that, that tells us the color of the rainbow <laughs> um but yeah and so just like by that point in time you're you're doing something that is on on the surface level like a really easy task but it's it's just compounded by time and being tired. And I just remember that being a very long and arduous process. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a good way to describe it. Going back to the, uh, the other task of digging yourself out of this hole that you created for yourself. Um, what did you do and how did you overcome like this, um, you know, negative place that you put yourself in basically because you didn't take that chance to refuel like how did you try to get yourself into a good place yeah so th that's a really good question um one of the other things that made it difficult for me in the winter death race was i didn't bring a crew with me i was completely self-supported and mm -hmm. so you know i had gone out there i knew i needed food and 
Um, so I'm breaking out my jet boil and it's frozen. I had to go and warm that up for that to even go and work. Um, and so I've got food cooking and I know that I'm just kind of like at a low point and the, the worst thing that you can do is just kind of like sit inside of your own head at that point. You know, like it's, it's, it's not going to get better, but if you can just push through, then like it'll always get sunnier on the other side. But there were a couple other people down there in the basement. And, you know, since I didn't have anybody that I brought with me in my corner, I I just knew, okay, I've got to go and partner up with somebody to go and get me through this. And so it was somebody else's crew. And I just started talking to them. And I, I was selective on who I chose. You know, like I chose someone that just I thought going to go and get my face. Like if I told him, like I was at a low point and you know, I, I chose the right person to just go give me the, the kick in the ass that I needed at that point in time. And you know, she did that. And so that's what got me to go and like, all right, pull my head out of my own ass and get the food, shove it down my face and give me some other things to go and carry with me and eat for the next two, three hours to get my calorie content back up on this next lap. And so it's, I feel like the biggest thing is just being aware of where you're weak individually and Mm -hmm. knowing what it is you need to do in that situation. And for me, like I knew that if I was left on my own, like, I don't know, it wasn't going to be good. I, I knew that I was at that point where I wanted to go and quit. And so it was like, okay, I need to go and find someone that's going to go and give me that kick that I needed. Yeah. Find that external motivation. That's going to help you keep on keeping on. Yeah. That's, that's really wise of you to, to be able to recognize that, especially in that moment and then like go find it. It's pretty cool. Uh, we talked a little bit about hallucinations. What kind of hallucinations did you have? <laughs> so, um, like during that sensory deprivation thing, I, I don't remember too many of them. I know I know that I was dreaming. And so I, I would almost consider that more of like a dream than a hallucination. But it, that was just a wild experience in itself. Um, during summer of 2012, towards the end of it, um, you know, like it, it's it wasn't like hallucinations like you hear in the movies or anything like that. It's more of like when you look up at the clouds, like you can see faces and images and stuff. And so, yeah. you know, like we're, we're going through the trails there at night. You got my head, my head lights on uh, the leaves of the tree. And I just start seeing like faces inside the leaves, you know, like they just go <laughs> and make like shapes. And so it's not like a hallucination, like, ah, oh, there's an elephant over there. I've never experienced anything like that. It was just like, you start and seeing different objects that aren't really there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely something how how that happens and uh, just sleep deprivation in itself. It's just one of those things like we 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 start to our brains start to try to create patterns. They try to create things and it's like it's trippy. It is. It is. And I, I feel like the, the test is like, you know, whenever I was tired, it was like always just kind of like like touching my fingers like, OK, like physical dexterity is there. Check. I'm good. And then like mental, like, OK, give myself a little math problem in my head. Like, can I is two plus two, four. All right. Cool. Like mentally, I'm there. I'm able to go and function like when you're not able to go and do those 
those things, that's when it's like, okay, I got to go and like fix something. And so it must be off if I can't do these little things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so like, you know, I was just kind of like always checking myself, you know, like I I do remember at one point in time debating there, there there's a tree in somebody's yard off in the distance. And like, um, I'm looking at this thing in the distance and I'm like, it's the morning. It's probably like 6am sun's just coming up. And I see somebody just in their front yard, just peeing (laughs) like this doesn't make sense and there's there's just like this disconnect you know like in my head i'm seeing this thing i'm registering it as one thing but it doesn't make sense and so like as long as you're consciously aware they're like okay this isn't real this is a hallucination then you're doing okay you like you get close enough to it you're like okay yeah that's a truth it's not a (laughs) question yeah you just gotta go and like question your reality enough to make sense of it (laughs) Exactly. Um, how do you handle the controlled chaos of the death race? So it's really just one step at a time. You know, you can't be looking at the person to your right or left in front of you, behind you. Like they've got their own thing going on. You know, they might be on a completely different task than what you're at. And so it, it it's very much about just setting those mile markers for yourself in your own mind. Okay, here's the task I need to do. Break it down. What do I need to do to go and get to that uh, to that checkpoint? And just one foot in front of the other. You know, like if you go and try to process everything that's going on around you, you're sunk. It's, it's an impossible yeah, task. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to put those little blinders on and just focus it's so on true. your path. Putting on the blinders and sticking to your task and breaking that task up into little tasks if you have to, mm-hmm. you know, but in just accomplishing those little milestones one after another is what's going to get you there. If you try to look at everything else going on, you're you're going to get lost. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like making I'll, I'll call them like little like five minute friends, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're doing their own thing. You're doing your own thing. And like for whatever the five minutes are that you're on that same trail, you know, like you're, you're just doing your own things, but you're doing them together. And so there's yeah. a camaraderie that you can go and build. And yeah. You know, like that's a good way to go and make whatever task you're on easier. And that's also extremely helpful for myself. I like doing that. Yeah, I think that's super a good point. And it's it's okay if like, hey, you know what? You're going to hang out with this person for maybe five, ten minutes, maybe a half hour. But like, you know, if they end up taking off or if they end up falling behind, that's okay because we're you all just got to kind of focus on you when it's the death race. You know, other races, it might be a little bit different. But like in the death race, most of the time you got to just worry about numero uno yourself uh and and everything else around you kind of just comes and goes as it goes uh let's see so three most essential pieces of gear for a death race (laughs) extra shoes and socks Mm, always (laughs) yeah they're gonna get wet i've seen some nasty feet by the end of this always have so extra dry shoes extra dry socks yeah (laughs) um the something that really helped me out there in the summer um i had some 2xu leggings you know just okay um you know we're going through a bunch of those stained nettles they never bothered me i had little leggings on there that protected me throughout the <laughs> that's, entire process that's key the stinging nettles are the worst up there <laughs> yeah yeah they, i saw a lot of people that were having issues with them i was really happy that i wasn't having that problem they're um, everywhere yeah, they really are. That's crazy. And in in line with that, just 
learn how to layer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really important. You know, you're going to be up there during the day. It's going to be hot. You're going to be out there at night. Temperature's going to drop. You know, learn how to layer effectively. Mm-hmm. That, that's those would be the three things right there. For yeah, and, that, and that's important for both summer and winter. I mean, either way, you need to know how to layer, when to shed, how to shed, make it quick. So you're not like messing around with all this, you know, extra clothing, find ways to make efficiencies with that. It's really important. So we, we mentioned this earlier, you finished the 2012 death race. What happened with your 2015 death race? So 2015 got uh, DNQ, did not quit. And so, you know, throughout all that whole thing, I was way behind the pack. And so, um, they, they definitely think <laughs> so betrayal for me, that, that theme from 2012, it, it never left my head. And so at the beginning of 2015, I didn't trust Joe when he was up there telling us that like every aspect of this race, this race is going to be a race. I, I didn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's funny you bring that up because I feel like that's the one thing they did wrong with the year of betrayal is every year thereafter, everyone kept thinking that if they participated in that year, that it was still betrayal. Like I, I could not shake that ever. I never trusted anyone after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. I was one of those people. And so, you know, I, I there, there were elements of that in 2015 for sure. And, you know, after I fell behind, I I was just like, okay, you know, I'm just going to go out here doing this for me. Um, This is kind of my FU to cancer. I'm going out here seeing my own limits. And so I didn't worry so much about falling behind. You know, they they kept on assessing extra penalties I was going to have to go and pay at the end. And eventually I was just like, all right, you know, like whatever, you know, it'll be what it'll be. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end when they were tallying up all the penalties, I ended up having... I, don't know, I took a picture of the board. I, I should have looked at it before now, but um, had to be in the water for an hour. I had like 3,000 burpees. I had, I don't know how many climbs up and down the mountain. And you had, I think they gave us like 10 or 12 hours to go and get it done in or something. And so, you know, I, I spent my hour in the water. I, I spent the rest of the time knocking out burpees and it was not fast and it was not pretty. But, you know, by the time that they called finish uh, on the death race, I was there knocking out burpees. And yeah. of the there are people that finished it when time was called up at the top of the mountain. They all got skulls and I, I was there in the barn <laughs> in my underwear doing burpees. And I was like, all right. No. <laughs> But you didn't quit, right? You didn't quit, which is, I think, really important um, for, for anyone listening. You know, you never know what they're going to do with these races. Um, and the biggest thing is they're trying to make you quit. So as long as you don't quit, like you've finished everything that you were able to finish. And that in itself is a massive, massive accomplishment. Um, so what was like your defining moment for either of these events? You know, like. The defining moment for me was just like getting that DNQ at 2015, um, just because of where I was personally. Like I mentioned, I was kind of there uh, towards the tail end of chemo. And so mm-hmm. I had gone into it with wanting to test myself in the winter, and Vermont didn't let me down. I. <laughs> Vermont winters are rough. 
And so, you know, I, I felt really accomplished, like, okay, cool. You know, like I set out to do what I wanted to go and do. And, you know, I, I would have liked to have come home with a skull, but it, it just wasn't in the books for that year. And so, you know, I, I came home and there were lessons I learned about, you know, like, all right, food's going to freeze on the outside. And so, like I said earlier, you know, like, as long as you learn something from the experience, you know, like it's not a loss. And so, yeah. um, you know, it, it's walked away with that. And just like the, the mental strength, the, those things that the death race causes you to do that, that's probably like the, the defining moment for myself right there. You know, like it was bigger than actually finishing 2012 for yeah. me personally. Yeah. And that's huge. That's huge. Um, so where did you, I know you said that you didn't really have too many fears going into the first one. And, and usually courage is a result of, um, overcoming fears, but where did your courage come from to do 2012 or 2015? So, um, you know, I, I, I don't really know. Um, just, I feel like personally, it's for me, I mean, there's definitely an element of courage that's there, but for me, defining what that is, where it comes from, it's hard because like with 2015, I can't remember how many people signed up for it, but I remember when we were all there assembled at the start point, there were a lot of people that did not show. And so (laughs) like, just like those people that were there, you know, like obviously there's some element of courage that it requires just to go and show up. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily know personally where that comes from, but like, I feel like for me, the, the bigger aspect is just like commitment. It's like, okay, you know, like I said, I was going to go and do something. And so, you know, all right, I said it, let's, let's go and do this. Um, it's, it's like that follow through it's, you know, okay. You know, like you decide you want to go and do something, make an announcement to the world and then follow through with it. Um, and so I I guess it's just the courage is kind of like a, a, a standard I adopted for myself is like, okay, you know, like, this is my code of ethics. If I say mm-hmm. do something and go and follow through with it and just yeah. trying to stay true to that. Um, I don't I like know. that. I like that. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's important. It's important to follow through on the things that you say you're going to do. It's incredibly important. Uh, what wisdom did you gain from your death races? So that one, you know, to, to continue the, the whole cancer story, um, mm-hmm. the wisdom is just, really how to go and deal with those low points in life. Um, inevitably it's going to happen. You're going to have a bad day out there when you're on the death race and being able to go and weather that storm is the biggest piece of wisdom that I took out through the whole process, you know, like training for the death race, the other events that led up to it, the death race itself. Um, you know, I, I did that chemo and then like it, cancer, it didn't go away, but it was just dormant for another three years. And then it started acting up again, um, which is now three and a half years ago. And so another round of chemo and they said, this isn't going away. Like you have to go and get the right half of your pelvis removed. And so, you know, over the past three years, I've been learning how to walk again. And so oh, wow. that, that, that's some dark times right there. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. And, 
the, the biggest takeaway from all this experience is just how to go and weather that storm. Because, you know, to, at the risk of doing a, a cheesy metaphor, you know, like it's been like a three year death race kind of thing that I feel like I've been going through. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still in, in a large part, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, so, yeah, the, that, that's the biggest takeaway right there is yeah, how it's, to it's, go and weather that real. storm. Yeah, it's a very real thing that you're having to now to go through and uh i'm glad that things are improving and it's moving in the right direction uh but that's it's an excellent thing to take away from the death race is being able to be like look you know i can now use all these lessons i learned from this to apply to this life event that i'm now dealing with uh and it's it's not it sucks that you have to deal with it that's the reality it does suck but it's the reality that you have and you know i'm thankful that you are able to deal with it you've got a smile on your face and uh you're making making some great progress which is awesome and uh thank you for sharing it with everyone because i think there's others out there that might need to hear this like look you can go accomplish things even if you know you end up with something like cancer or any other you know disease that is uh debilitating in a way that you're not ready for uh the truth is you can you can keep on keeping on if you have a positive attitude positive outlook you know i think that's huge yeah, absolutely. You know, that's definitely one of the things that, you know, I, I hope this resonates with somebody, you know, like when you're out there, you, you definitely want to go and find somebody that's been through that. And so, you know, I, I definitely hope that this goes and finds somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, in that spot. hopefully inspires someone and gives them the motivation they need to keep doing the things that they love. Uh, so who are you before the death race and who would you say you are now? Um. Um, so before the death race, I'd, I'd probably say just, <laughs> um, overconfident, <laughs> you know, not, not necessarily in a bad way, but, you know, I like just like, you know, like I, I started doing this thing just because of peer pressure. Like I didn't know what I was going into, like, um, and so whatever young, green, innocent, whatever, um, you know, like afterwards, I, I'd say, you know, I, I've gone through the fires like, OK, cool. You know, like I'm stronger mentally. I'm more mature. I'm, I wouldn't call it overconfidence. It's like, OK, you know, like I, I've done this. I, I know physically, mentally where I am, you know, like I'm, I'm grounded. And so I, I feel like the, the larger sense is like a more mature person, like understanding mm -hmm. myself, understanding the world and the way that things operate. I think that's who I was before as compared to who I am now as a result of the death race. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of humbles you, right? Like it does, it, it brings you down a notch. It kind of puts everything on an even you're like, okay, this is where I'm at. This, <laughs> this is got it. <laughs> like, it's definitely a good, uh, good way to look in, inside. Uh, would you do the race again now that it's back? So right now, physically, no. Um, Fair. you know, like, I, I've got it in my mind, like at some point in time, I've got a bucket list. All right. All right. You know, like to go out and do another hundred mile or like to go and do another triathlon. I've got a lot more rehab to do before death race is a possibility. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, like I'm not going to totally write it off, but it's definitely at this point, not in the cards right now. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, what hundred mile are you looking at? If you don't mind, uh, I, I don't have a specific one in mind. Um, you know, like I, I had surgery three months before the AC 100, the Angels okay. Crest 100. Okay. So, 
you know, that's one, but probably an easier one. That's a little flatter would be where I would start with, but that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> where, um, where are you at in recovery now? Like how much more, more time do you have to put in? So this is kind of the wild thing is that, you know, like, so when they took the hip out, they didn't do a replacement or anything. Um, it's a longer recovery time, but apparently you have more functionality afterwards. Just scar tissue goes and forms in over time and replaces the joint, which is wild, blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm using a cane to walk long distances, short distances. I'm good. But um, like two weeks ago, I did about a, a five mile hike up to the top of echo mountain. So there's about mm-hmm. maybe 1500 feet of elevation gain. And so it's like, okay, you know, like that's where I'm at right now. I was able to go and do that without too much problem. It just takes that's, me longer than it did yeah. before. So. Yeah. I mean, but that's a, that's a, that's some good elevation gain right there. That'll, <laughs> that'll get you going. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, awesome. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's some huge progress, man. And that's great. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> you have to keep you have to keep us updated on how it goes. Um, I always like to ask this at the end of the episode: if you were to gift a book to someone who was looking to do a death race or any endurance event, what book or books would that be? So there, there's one that I love. It's uh, Endurance um, by Alfred Lansing. It's yes. uh, Shackleton, his story. <laughs> so phenomenal! Such a good book. It's. 100% true. Like it, it's the journal entries of everybody that was on that expedition. And if you want a tale of people who had to survive and just rely on themselves, it's an amazing story. It's a really good one. It's a really good one. I'm, I'm glad you brought that book up. Were there any others? Um, I, I, I thought about it, but no, that, that was the one that really like stood out in my mind. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I think that's a fantastic one. Well, uh, what's next for you right now? Is it just recovery and kind of getting yourself back in the game eventually or what's, what's the plan? Yeah. So, you know, like, like you said earlier, you know, I got my first kid due in a week and so mm-hmm. that, that's on the immediate forefront. Uh, I've got one more year left in grad school and I, I just have a life philosophy. Like you can do three things. Well, like you have enough time in a day and a week to do three things. And so yeah. right now it's family, grad school and work. And so, yeah. Uh, one year left on grad school. And at that point in time, I'll reevaluate and see what's going to fill in that spot. But yeah, the time being, those are the three things. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, good luck with grad school. Good luck with recovery. Good luck with the baby. You got a lot of great things coming. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show. If you want, this is a great time for uh, you to share anywhere that people can kind of follow you or your journey or anything if you want to. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a very large social media presence or anything like that, but I'm on Facebook. So, you know, feel free to send me a direct message, just Jeff Robinette, and I'd be happy to go uh, reply. Awesome. We will add that in the show notes so people can find you. And thank you again so much for being on the show. It's been great having you. And stay tuned for more legends from past Death Racers. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. This really helps the podcast move up the rankings so we can reach even more humans. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you find you really enjoy what we're doing, consider becoming a sustaining member by clicking the link in the show notes. Just a quick reminder, my legend, The Legend of the Death Race book is now available. Visit legendofthedeathrace.com book to order your copy today. Thank you again for tuning in. If you'd like to stay up to date on my current adventures and training, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook 
Just search the handle at That Endurance Guy or visit thatenduranceguy.com. We'll see you next time on the Legend of the Death Race podcast. Now go create your own legend.